You're listening to another episode of Modern Guilt. Thank you for subscribing, continuing to listen, to support us. We have with us um, a very special guest who we're really happy to have on for the second time around. Uh, hopefully we'll go third time lucky in the future. Um, <clears throat> so we have Rod Olsman, uh, who for those of you who are long-time listeners will remember was one of the uh, the OG GameStop wizards who was uh, kind enough to impart some wisdom on us in uh, early December before uh, the stock almost broke the share market. So, Rod, hello. How are you going? I'm doing better today than I was on December 14th. <laughs> yes, I think we all are. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me back. Ah, that pleasure. So, uh, December 14th. It was a pretty rough day. Rough for me. Um, I remember leading up to that, me and Hayden had, uh, you know, been following you for a long time. Uh, my story of getting into GameStop was I actually, I don't drink often, but I got drunk one night and I uh, came home and made a drunk bet off the back of, I think, Jeff Amazon or Sir Jackalot and had put the entirety of my trading account into GameStop. Woke up in the morning, freaked out, saw that it was up 10%, and then dived into DD and then was like, oh, this is actually a really good bet. Um, Usually you're supposed to do that first. Yeah, yeah. Well, normally I I had been following it (laughs) since about $9 a share, and it had been on my radar, but I hadn't sort of fully looked into it. I was like, you know, amidst the craziness, it was just another stock that people were talking about. Um, And that day that we had you on, I was down a pretty considerable amount of money and reassessing my decisions and life choices. <laughs> and thank God you didn't reassess too deeply. <laughs> yeah, and it all changed. Yeah, you, you, you really can't make this stuff up. I mean, the, the fact that we recorded at the lowest price point it's been, 12.72. Uh, I'm glad that you didn't sell early, Damon. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think for both of us, having you on um, and giving the complete overview and rundown opened our eyes to like the almost absurd level of detail that had sort of been put into the DD going forward. Like we had kind of consumed it in a fragmented nature, taking bits here and there, but then getting the almost like just the GameStop investment Bible slammed down on the table in front of us by yourself. um, That made me pretty convinced. But funnily enough, like I, I went around and still spoke to a few of my friends about it and whatnot. And they're just like, oh yeah, man, like that sounds uh, good. As in, like, <laughs> you're fucking cooked, mate. Like, you know, just looking at me like I had brain cancer. And um, Oh, you want to buy a video game retailer in COVID? Yeah, good, good yeah. luck with that, Pete. <laughs> and um, anyway, sure enough, um, things <clears throat> transpired as they did. But um, we have, Damon and I have had this conversation in person, or I mean, not in person, just off the record, about how lucky we feel to have, I guess, uh, partly facilitated the the process or whatever like being able to have you on and share the podcast around afterwards and obviously you did like an insane job of sharing it like on our behalf as well um it's still it's our most played episode by far we'll have to one-up it so i don't know that we're gonna (laughs) (laughs) but but Um, no you know it really was great and thank you guys for giving me the platform because i think it helped a lot of people you know for me it was nice to just like try and get the story out in like one you know cohesive manner and and sometimes just Uh saying it aloud helps but like Mm, giving people you know the insight into how the company came to be what it was and what it's becoming and i think we can certainly talk more about where we think it might be going now because since we spoke in december a lot has happened with regard to the ryan cohen settlement and the new uh administrative hires and the cfo leaving etc etc but I, i i know i told you guys this before we started recording but i genuinely think that us doing the pod helped a lot of people to have the conviction and, and have the confidence and if they already had a position to hold it or if they were thinking about adding to to buy in and you know timing was pretty prescient um within a month it was up into the oh well, i guess just around a month it got up into the 30s and then the next week it went to the moon yeah um, yeah, yeah. That, that makes my heart not many things provoke emotional response in me but uh that's yeah nice to hear did you have any doubters as well leading up to uh, to all of this? Like people being like, you know, Rod, what are you up to, mate? Honestly, I, I, I've uh, <laughs> definitely had fewer doubters of late. Um, <laughs> 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 no, man, I, there were certainly doubters all along the way. Like, especially, you know, we, no need to like. It was years of doubt. I mean, for and I was wrong for years, and I'll admit it. I mean, the market clearly felt 
the way they did for a long time, like for all of my ownership of it in 2018 um, and then 2019, like those were two pretty lonely and painful years. And I remember, it's funny, um, I was actually having an interview with a reporter at the New York Times just before this. And I was telling him, you know, at lunch, at work, I would bring up GameStop like all the time, literally from like 2017, <laughs> 18, 19, like I would always be oh. talking about GameStop. The hero so, none of us deserve. So, so, you know, it's funny. Two of the guys who remember me talking about it, like, back in the beginning, uh, no longer work there. But they reached back out to me, like, a couple weeks ago. And they were like, how's it going? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, great success. Yeah, yeah. Fucking outstanding. But no, it was lonely for a long time. And it really wasn't until 2020 that I had other people to commiserate with mm. about GameStop. And obviously, things have changed in the past six plus months. So um, I would also just like to congratulate uh, Modern Guilt on being on the same tier now as the New York Times. I forgot to mention that at the start of the podcast, but when we um, reached out to Rod again to come on, he, we were scheduling our time in, talking about a date or whatever, and he's like, oh, how about, um, what is it, Monday night for you, Rod, Eastern time? How about uh, 6.30 p.m.? I've got a meeting with the New York Times and would be able to just roll straight off the back of that into the podcast if you like. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, Nothing like going from uh, one of the most hallowed media institutions in the history of the world straight into um, straight into modern guilt. So that's that's nice. Uh, watch out, New York Times. But, but but you know what, Hayden? It's like just because your brand or your reputation or whatever precedes you or doesn't precede you, I think what I found very you know a good learning from this whole experience has been to treat people with respect, whether you agree with them or not, and just try to listen to everybody. Just because somebody has a brand name doesn't mean they're right, and just because somebody doesn't have that brand name doesn't mean they're wrong. Like you should listen to people's perspectives. You should judge people based on the idea, based on the content, not based on who they are. Mm. And I think that's mm. that's been a big part of this experience. Yeah, yeah. Off the back of that, that was kind of funny to see the whole thing unravel, and to I guess by virtue of being involved in the trade somehow swept up into the Russian disinformation, uh, what was it that Jimmy Kimmel was saying or something? There's there a big sort of push against uh, sort of dismissing the whole thing as a, um, you know, Russian disinformation tactic. Yeah, GameStop was all just a communist ploy to take down capitalist America. Yeah, what's your real name, Rod? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, seemed, it was interesting to note, though, like how I feel misunderstood the movement was as well while it was happening you know it was originally just felt like a you know a fun not fun but like a really good play you know that somehow it got swept up into an ideological uh nightmare yeah and who would have thought that it would legitimately break the market like to an extent i mean all the plumbing of the financial system got clogged and in hindsight it it doesn't strike me that there was anything explicitly illegal done by what kind of happened to bog things down, but it sure smelled like shit. I mean, when Robinhood first came out, they weren't really honest when they said that there wasn't, you know, a liquidity issue, because really it was a liquidity issue. There were so many buyers of this one security on their platform that their collateral needs went up and they didn't have the money. And now there's, you could raise the question of like, was there some human involvement at, you know, the DTCC, the NSCC, the clearinghouses, like where some human hedge fund related, perhaps, had some sort of a conversation with them regarding the collateral requirements. I don't know. I mean, that's speculative. But by and large, it does seem like it really was the plumbing of the system with settlement and with collateral just kind of got bogged down by this unprecedented, like, who would have thought that there'd be a global mania behind it? And like people were you know, buying billboards in Times Square for GameStop. Like, I certainly didn't include that in my investment thesis. <laughs> so it, it, it absolutely blew up into something far bigger than I think even the most prominent bull advocate would have really realistically envisioned. I mean, when we talked about going to the moon, you know, when you guys were making it, you know, calling it GameStop moon mission in the first uh, pod, you know, we were at 12 and change, right? I don't think we were expecting $500. Yeah, realistically, yeah. were we really expecting that? I know I personally wasn't. I think, but I think in the podcast, we mentioned like 120, possibly by the, t by the end of 2021. I, I think. Well, that was, I think that's a fundamentals, or that was a fundamentals yeah. price, right? So I guess the squeeze price is not a fundamentals price. And, and that's something I always, I try to be clear with people is, you know, their stocks should eventually hone in on fair market value. Now they can be disconnected from that for a long time. I mean, in my opinion, Tesla is perhaps above its fair market value and it's been that way for a long time and Just a it may continue to be that way for a long time. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you know, it's a scam or it's a fraud per se. It just means the price is not really connected to the fundamental, you know, this kind of cash flow generating abilities of the company, in, in my opinion, at least, right? And GameStop at, you know, $500 a share 
you know, it's like I told Bloomberg on the Odd Lots podcast they had me on. It's like, I can't make a justification for GameStop as an investment when we were recording that pod. That Thursday morning was when the price, you know, got up to 483. And as much as I love GameStop as a consumer and prospectively as an investor, you know, you can't just buy a stock because of those things. I, I personally don't, you know, and people, you know what, that's what it gets back down to, though, is the point that people feel like they have the right to and they do and they should. And they felt like Robinhood's actions and the actions of the other brokerages that kind of limited trading made people feel like you're telling me I can't make this decision as an adult that I want to buy this stock. I know it's up a ton and I probably don't know anything, you know, as a layperson, probably don't know shit about the underlying business or, or what the cash flows, the business or any of that crap are. I just want to buy it because people are buying it. And, you know, should people be allowed to participate in manias? Yeah, if they want to. But I tried to be very level-headed with it. And I was trying to make it clear that at that point, it was a speculative bet. And, you know, to be quite honest, it's somewhat still, you know, looking at the price now, it closed at 120 today. So it's crazy that the price is back up from 40 bucks a week ago. Um, so we could make, you now have that conversation. Is it speculative at 120? Um, but like the markets are very different now. I think this whole idea of like buying a stock for a message I don't know that that was something maybe before what happened with GameStop, maybe not in the same way, but like people, I know I've seen people online saying like, I'm buying this stock because I want to send a message. And that's definitely a new thing. It seems like. Yeah, that. That, that was really interesting. Eh? I, I remember leading up to it um, was when I started getting shaky and everything, because I'd seen you tweeting about how it's really important to know the right time to sell. Yeah. And then the analogy I always like to use is, you know, you're, you're sort of at a party, it's, it's a good time. And then... Uh, the weirdos start coming in, you know, and I, I saw some like Bitcoin dude being like, I'm going to liquidate 5 million and chuck it all on GameStop to get back the hedge funds. I don't even care if I lose it. And I was like, Ooh, you don't care if you lose $5 million. Like, you know, and, and then uh, I think the final straw that I was telling Hayden was like Jordan Belfort. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, nope, yeah, absolutely time to pace out. Like, yeah, I'm here to make money on good companies that I believe in, not to send a message <laughs> against. Yeah. I'm looking at, I'm just looking because like I, I, my brain is fried, but I'm looking at the 26 that closed at 148. And that was when Elon Musk after hours tweeted game stonk, right? Yeah. And I know that was a, for, for Senvest, who was reported in the Wall Street Journal a few days you know, after the fact that they had sold out, you know, they took it to, to the point you were just making, like, well, the weirdos are coming in. Like, well, with Elon <laughs> Musk tweets GameStop, I mean, we were beneficiaries, like that we were still long and the price then opened the mm -hmm. next day up. You know, it opened at 354. So it literally opened up almost 200, more than $200 per share, which is mind blowing to think like it opened up $200 per share. Yeah. Um, I think that it was clear at that point that it was fully disconnected. But look, like that's when I think a lot of us were still thinking it really could go. And I, I believed it could go past what it went to. And it, I think it would have if it weren't for the plumbing issues we were discussing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember. Oh, so I remember seeing Shkreli uh, was really active talking about it, being like, "No, no, no, it's not going to squeeze. It's not a good fundamental thesis to bet on a squeeze." Blah 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 blah. And then his tune changed, and he was like, "Actually, I think it might go to a thousand dollars a share." I think at that point I'd sold out anyway, but I was still following what he was saying, um, and had sort of talked about the borrow rate going up and the fact that hedge funds are just going to, you know, the hedge funds people thought they were against. Um, <laughs> that a lot of them were probably just going to pile on to take advantage of the fact that they're getting fifty percent interest. So, David, it's funny you mentioned Martin. I had a Reddit conversation with his username, at least, <laughs> at one point. Um, when we put up the GMEDD, I think someone had brought it to his attention or something on his subreddit. And I had said, I had pasted some of the info. I didn't realize, like, he can't just access the web, you know, openly in jail. Um, but I said, you know, look, at, look over our, you know, our model. And I pasted some of the information. So he kind of disagreed with me, by and large, um, about the fundamentals to the point you just made. I don't think he buys into it. But I don't know, maybe his opinion has changed. Uh, but yeah, I saw um, what you were just mentioning, the commentary about the borrow rate. And I think we might have talked about that in, in the pod, like, that was the factor that you needed to follow is the rate. And it's like you get a couple of vectors of information to try and follow along with the short interest live. Like S3, you know, was coming out every day and Ehor was you know, saying what their data, you know, breadcrumbs were showing the short interest as. And I think by and large, they were mostly right. You know, people were mad when they were saying that there had been a lot of covering. And it's like, well, well, shit, the price just ran up like crazy. I mean, yeah, a lot of covering <laughs> probably did happen. Um, yeah. I find it harder to explain what happened this last time. Um, what was it last? Was it Wednesday where it yeah. ran? I mean, it opened at 44.70 and then it closed at 91.71 at the high of the day, but it had gotten halted at 346. And I looked 
in the New York Stock Exchange's rules, like if a halt would other because halts are normally five minutes, and if it had if it would reopen after three fifty, then it has to stay closed for the balance of day. So basically, you halted from three forty six to four when the market normally closes because of that weirdness. And then the next day, it ran up to one eighty five during trading hours, and like I mean, it's at one hundred twenty right now. Um, you know, I, I think we I'll say it out loud, like my Twitter got hacked from, I woke up Saturday, the 20, um, sorry, Saturday, the 6th. And I look at my phone and I have like 80 messages from Twitter. Like, unfortunately I had an old password on Twitter and I didn't have multi-factor authentication. So the person was able to, um, the password was part of a compromise. It wasn't like the shorts hacked my account. It was straight up a Nigerian scammer got ownership to my account. You can see like in the IP, when I look through the um, history of the access to the account, somebody from Nigeria was you know, using the account to try and shill crypto yeah, like, to everybody. Literally <laughs> Nigeria, yeah. <laughs> right, so, so I don't think it was like Melvin Capital sent somebody to you know get in there and see my DMs. I think it was I don't just know, man. You know, I, my dumbass. I hear they have password. a pretty shadowy presence in Nigeria though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like before that happened, I think I'd been saying like, you know, look, the price is gonna come back down at some point, you know, sell, cash secured puts at prices you're willing to buy at. And I mean, I legitimately made more than, at this point I've made more than three times my initial GameStop investment in realized premium, just writing puts. Like the implied volatility has been so crazy. But unfortunately for me, I have not had any of those puts assigned. So I did not have any shares to benefit from this recent run up. But you know what, it's all good. That's a good problem to have, dude. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So um, you mentioned before we, um, we started recording, Rod, that you're becoming pretty interested in the sort of macro economic environment at the moment and disruptive technology and the role that it plays in that. Um, you want to give us the lowdown, man? Um, tell us your thoughts and uh, we'll, we'll riff on that from here. Sure. Let's start with macro. So I see a lot of people, like we had a little bit of market temper tantrum, both in the bond market last week with you know, interest rates, so, you know, for viewers or listeners rather who aren't, you know, financy folks, like a bond... Which, by the way, is the vast majority of our listeners who are just knuckleheaded <laughs> fucking idiots. Yeah, let, <laughs> let, let me be clear, too. <laughs> I'm not like some super knowledgeable bond market person, but you know, a bond is a debt instrument, right? Like a company issues a bond to raise money, to fund investment, or to pay off maybe higher interest debt, or maybe just as part of their capital allocation. You know, companies don't typically fund themselves entirely by equity, like you learn it in you know, finance 101, debt is cheaper than equity. And you know, if you're a company that's wholly equity financed, like sure, you don't have as much, you, know, you, you don't have like a bankruptcy risk because maybe you don't have any liabilities. I mean, let's leave everything else out of the equation. But you know, if you don't owe any debts, um, you're less apt to go bankrupt. Well, a lot of companies will issue bonds because they may want to have, you know, 20% of their capital structure might be like debt or 40% or 50%, whatever they determine based on their business model. So like when you have bonds, you're going to get, you know, you lend money to somebody, you're going to want a rate of interest and bond rates have been falling for decades since the eighties. Like if you look at like a long run, um, you know, most people talk about bonds, they'll talk about like treasuries, right? U.S. government debt as like the gold standard for, for bonds. It, you know, that's what's often thought about is like the risk-free rate. When people are talking about, you know, what is the risk-free rate? It's like, oh, is that the 10-year treasury or whatever U.S. government debt? And you don't pay much. Um, the government doesn't pay much in interest right now because bond yields are really low. And bond yields are inversely related with bond prices. If the bond price goes up, the bond yield goes down and vice versa. If the bond price goes down, the bond yield goes up. And that's what happened last week was there was this little bit of a, from my reading, it seemed to be like a bit of a technical thing. Like there's a treasury auction that didn't go very well. There wasn't a lot of demand to buy. So um, the yield went up and the price went down because there wasn't a lot of buying of the bond. So the bond price fell. Um, and kind of the implication is when people are making long-term investments, they're thinking about, you know, what is the discount rate? Like, $100 10 years from now is worth less than $100 today normally because there's going to be some inflation and you also want to be compensated for the opportunity cost. And, you know, you'll determine what is the appropriate discount rate to you know, take those cash flows back to the present value at. And like bond yields have been complete trash for a long time now, but you could actually get a decent return because people have just had this insatiable appetite to buy bonds. And, and even though you're not making money off the the um, 
I'm having a brain fart. Even if you're not making money off the coupon, the payment, you know, that you're going to get paid uh, for the interest over time, um, they've made money off the bonds continuing to appreciate because people have just continued to buy them. So the yields keep going lower and the bond prices keep going higher. But that's started to change. And people, I think, are starting to expect that there might be more growth, which if there's more growth and potentially some concerns about inflation, then the longer term you know, bond yields will start to rise. And that's what we've started to see happening. And it was one of those things where it started to happen really quickly last week that's kind of started to spook people. But look, the, to step back from bonds now, like the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell's made it really clear, the Fed is not going to be doing anything quick when it comes to what they can control, which is short-term interest rates, because the Fed doesn't control long-term interest rates. You know, they, fed, they set the Fed funds rate for short-term borrowing, and, and they have that and some other tools. And they can, they can purchase bonds themselves, which if they are buying the bonds, that sends the price up and sends the yield down, right, which makes it easier potentially for companies to borrow. So it can juice the economy, can inject cash into the system, but not to go down that path. Um, the Fed said, you know, unemployment is really a hell of a lot higher than what the headline numbers say, because we've got all these people that have dropped out of the workforce, maybe especially moms, like women have gotten disproportionately impacted in this because a lot of them are staying home to take care of their kids who are trying to, you know, learn remotely. And now they're, you need someone at home because- the kid can't go to school for the day. And I know that there's been some data that's kind of talked about how women have been disproportionately affected by that. But like unemployment is still really high in the States. Um, the Fed is like, no, monetary policy is going to stay loose. And now you've got this 1.9 trillion fiscal, you know, incremental to all of the stimulus that's been spent by Papa Biden, um, or rather from the prior administration. And now you've got the Biden administration wanting to throw more fuel on the fire. So it's like the macro, you know, we had this huge global pandemic, which was horrible, is still horrible. But unlike a war where like all the factories and the productive capacity gets destroyed, like yes, lives were lost, but the productive capacity of the economy wasn't destroyed. Like you didn't have the same maybe like hangover that you had post great financial crisis is how a lot of economists that I follow are thinking about this. So the economy should be pretty well positioned with the factors of fiscal stimulus through the roof, plus monetary policy is going to remain loose. And you didn't have like a true hit to the productive capacity of the society. So the real big question mark is just, is it going to overheat? I think is what a lot of people are, are getting a little more concerned about. And, you know, is inflation going to get out of control? Which again, like the Fed is saying, we're not going to raise rates. And if you look at, um, you know, Joe Weisenthal, Bloomberg, he's super sharp guy. He does their markets write-ups in the in the morning on most of their newsletters. He was pointing out that the spread between the three-year treasury and the three-month treasury bill was like 19 basis points. So that's less than a quarter percent, which a Fed rate hike is a, typically going to be a quarter percent rate hike. So what that is saying is that the market itself is not expecting there to be even one rate hike in the next three years. So if we look at what's actually happening in the bond market granularly like that, the market doesn't expect there to be like some rapid raising of rates, which would tell me that maybe there's not a big reason to be worried about this. So on the one hand... I've been following, uh, I remember I was reading something that Kathy Woods put out saying that there's like the bond uh, markets in a bubble and what you're seeing is just that popping, it's coming down, we're entering a new growth paradigm. Obviously, she's very invested in that whole thesis. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that gets me super excited and bullish because she's talking about like, you know, oh, you know, these speculative companies are going to grow into their valuations and we're going to see this um, new, like, she makes it sound like you guys are about to... And, by virtue of you, the rest of us, about to uh, step into the roaring 20s, right? And, and I'm getting that feeling as well. Like, this really could be the start of an amazing decade. And then on my other shoulder is Nostradamus, Burry, even Dalio, Ray Dalio to some extent is talking a lot about hyperinflation. Uh, they're starting to do some, like, hedging activity. It's, it's like, making me nervous. There's Ray Dalio's whole decline of the American empire and uh, the rise of China, which will, you know cause potential warfare down the line. It feels like it can go either way at the moment. I'm not sure. Are you getting the same vibe that it's like, <laughs> it's either going to be really good or it's going to be really bad. Michael Burry's talking about uh, dramatic hyperinflation. Um, I sent screenshots of what he says to Hayden and I'm like, <laughs> oh man, I think I need to liquidate everything. Oh God. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, um, Dr. Burry's a sharp guy. Not everyone's always right. Um, some people uh, bailed out of GameStop way too early too. Uh, and <laughs> Shots fired. Um, look, let me let me look at let me introduce a data point, a couple data points. Like, so so why would consumer balance sheet is something that I think is important to to look at. Like, 
there's been all of this cash flowing into consumers, you know, pocketbook c- consumers on net. And I say consumers like it's one massive, you know, one individual. It's not obviously it's a market, but on net consumers have seen their income levels rise with the tandem of all of the enhanced unemployment benefits and, and all the stimulus um, monies that have been kind of showered at many people, at least in the U.S. So if you look at like actual household income levels have held up pretty darn well. Now, granted, a lot of that's from like government transfers. So it's not like employment income. But when you look at then consumer balance sheets, they've never been healthier. So the consumer's in good shape. The consumer's been spending a lot on goods. Presumably over the second half of 2021 is going to start to spend a bit more on services. Yeah, assets are really pricey. Housing is really pricey. But then let's talk about housing. Okay, housing is at an all-time high. Housing rates are going, you know, not rates, housing rates of increase are going crazy. Oh my God, it has to pop. Does it? I mean, if you look at the underlying demographics, you've got a lot of I think housing really captures this in like a nutshell. There was such a fall off. Again, this is more U.S. specific. I I can't speak to everybody's housing market, but U.S. housing, like after the great financial crisis, you had this massive pullback in housing starts. And if you look at the chart of like housing starts for the early 2010s, it's like stupidly low levels of um, houses being built. And then when you look at the demographics of all the 20 to 35 year olds who are kind of reaching that prime household formation stage of their life, I'm 31 and I want to buy a house. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm a prime example of someone who became, you know, a remote worker and who wanted, you know, moved out of a condo and I'm renting right now a single family home. But you've got these shifts from permanent, what I think will be permanent, they're being a bias toward larger houses, more single family style housing. People are going to, in general, shift away from the high cost um, high density urban areas to an extent. I'm not saying like New York or San Francisco are dying, but on net, you'll see some shift into suburb, into lower cost urban, into more exurb. And then you've got all these millennials that need their own housing. They're going to be sick and tired of living with their buddy and or pals for, you know, their entire adult life. They don't want that. So you've, you've got a demographic push for household formation with all of the millennials coming of age. You've got we talked about interest rates being still expected to be held down. So borrowing is still pretty inexpensive. If you're trying to get like a 30 year fixed rate mortgage in the US, I mean, it's still under 3%. Like, so even though prices are high, and that is partially a function of what I was saying, that supply is really constrained and we just don't have enough houses and houses don't get built overnight. And if you look at some of the raw commodity inputs like lumber, copper, I think was at a many, many year high. Um, all of these like commodities, I think that's a good spot to look to potentially invest for this perspective roaring 20s would be in the commodities market because all this you know growth is going to require raw inputs. Um, but look, you know, hyperinflation, we haven't seen inflation for a long time. Now, is it possible that we're going to rest on our laurels and it's going to come and get us? Like, I, I know that producer prices have been rising. And I know I attended a, a seminar um, last week for work that involved a lot of economic analysis and you know, their expectation was that we're going to have a 5.1% US GDP growth in 2021, you know, 3.1 in 2022 with bias to the upside because none of that included a prospective infrastructure bill which our country needs badly. But there's of the people I talk to like I don't hear people really concerned about inflation and I think it's a little early to be overly worried. Like there's going to be some transitory inflation that we're going to see just based on year over year changes over the next couple months in the US that people shouldn't get their panties in a bunch over, but I don't know, I don't see this whole hyperinflation thing being a real risk right now. Well, it's an action that you have to take as well, right? This is like, I'm, I was kind of surprised to see the uh, the drama about it because, I mean, New Zealand targets like 1% to 3% every single year. You know, we, that is literally our inflation target. And getting worried about 2% inflation, I was kind of surprised at. Um, or, you know, sure, it could go higher, but are they really going to do that? Like, the Fed aren't stupid. So, so they had made, like, yeah, they'd recently made a change to the way to the, here's a couple things from, from this Fed. For one, I saw a really good graphic this morning talking about how Powell compared to Yellen and um, Bernanke and Greenspan, the amount of like clarity in the messaging from the Powell Fed is the best that it's ever been. Like there's just not much uncertainty around what they're saying, like Fed speak. And, you know, Mm -hmm. late last year they talked about, right, they have two mandates from Congress. They have a full employment mandate and then they have a stable prices mandate. And stable prices eventually came to mean, you know, this 2% inflation target, which they've recently started to talk about as a symmetric goal. So it's run under 2% for a long period of time. So what it sounds like from them is they would be willing to see it run above 2% for a period of time. Now, we're like so far off, I think, from that being a serious risk. Now, obviously, markets look forward. Markets are trying to discount everything back. But, you know, from, from 
what the Fed is hearing and seeing, and when I try to follow the Fed speakers when they're out and about, it, it strikes me that they're much more concerned about full, you know, getting that employment back. Like one of the things that we've heard Powell talk about a lot is how like the beneficiaries at the late part of the cycle are the people who typically get left behind, like the minority workers, the you know, female workers, what have you, you know, somebody who's a less educated worker, those workers tend to like benefit like right at the end, right before shit goes bad. And Powell's like, well, why don't we, you know, not worry about this inflation bugaboo that hasn't really reared its head. We're still looking, we're going to watch and monitor, but let's, um, let's first make sure we get employment taken care of because that seems to be a little bit more pressing. Mm. So th- another another sort of counterpoint that I've heard to the, the fears of, of inflation and broader sort of economic and to an extent geopolitical disruption is that essentially the with the introduction of new technologies, particularly disruptive technologies, as you mentioned earlier, Rod, stuff like AI, like, the, those are going to be able to be used, leveraged to grow the pie, essentially. And I know that that's something that you're interested in. So how do you see like disruptive technology, sort of the intersectionality between, between that and this environment? Hmm. So, you know, this, the disruptive technology, I guess, lends to, I mean, affects a lot of shit. It obviously affects companies like the cleanest you know, example is all the many, many decades worth of investment into the internal combustion engine and the factories to build those internal combustion engines and the R&D spending on optimizing those internal combustion engines. Well, now, if you've you know invested all this capital that's you know sitting on your balance sheet, if you're General Motors or Ford or whoever, and you've got this disruption of the electric vehicle, it's like, is all of that investment for naught? Like, do I need to write that all off? Am I going to have to lay you know, workers off? Am I going to be put out of business if I don't respond appropriately to it? So, I mean, that's not really answering your AI, I guess, approach, but... I was just using AI as an example, so don't, don't worry yeah, particularly. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, inflation, it's really, it's like, it's this phantom that we've been talking about. Like the Fed's like, we need to be worried about inflation. It's like, we've not run over 2% for, for how long? So to me, you know, disruption can lower the cost of some things and raise the cost of others. Like, <laughs> sorry, I don't know where we're trying to take it. <laughs> no, no, there's no problem at all. We're not trying to take it anywhere. Just yeah. Like... yeah, I kind of get where you're going with that to some degree, I guess. What you're talking about is like, there's a lot of innovation that's deflationary by nature. You know, like the fact that you have something like Netflix that is brought down the cost of entertainment to yeah. what, $14 a month, $15 a month, that otherwise would have cost, you know, however much your uh, blockbuster spend was. Um, Amazon's brought food costs down for you guys. Um, we, we don't have Amazon in Zealand, but we have, you know, whatever equivalent that's also brought down. It's kind of got to the point now, um, personally, at the very least, I feel like life is almost as expensive as it was 10 years ago, aside from shit like housing that is directly affected by inflation. But like my day-to-day living is insanely cheap. My car costs way less to fill up. I'm still paying the same petrol bill that I was like, 10 years ago or something. You know what I mean? It's just well, so efficient now. Well, you know what? That, that's a good point though, that people talk about inflation and like this one, you know, macro thing, but like inflation, there are so many different constituents of inflation. So to your point, like cell phone bills, I think are something that have come down. I know domestically, I assume internationally, but like cell phone um, service has been deflating for many, many years. Um, whereas the cost of like college textbooks and higher education have been inflating much faster than the headline figure for a long time, medical expenses in the US. Um, but because of advances in technology, other things have been deflating. And so one of the biggest components of you know, the, the core uh, or consumer price index CPI is like owner um, the rent that is implied. So like those rents need to rise for there you know, to be inflation of that component and and so on. So like there's a lot of subcomponents of inflation, some of which have gone through the roof and some of which have gone through the floor. And that's why like on net, there hasn't really been much in the way of inflation. So I think that that's part of it is to remember that there's all of these different components that go into it. And you know, some of them like energy, it, you know, it's a lot, energy is a lot cheaper than it was during the boom years of like the late 2000s. It was, you know, a hundred plus dollar a barrel um, for petroleum. Like, well, I don't think anyone's really expecting us to see that anytime soon. So you know, that, that's, that's a piece of it that's worth kind of highlighting is the various components of inflation. Yeah. Do you think that they could end up in a more, because I personally feel like we're moving to more of this, like uh, to work towards like an abundance society. There's just so much shit that you can get now um and 
this might be a, a probably like a fairly ignorant position, but it's just kind of getting to the point, especially the, something that I noticed over lockdown with the majority of people not working, is that there's just not as much going into production anymore. And I'm wondering how many jobs are just going to be jobs that are effectively digging holes and filling them back in again. <laughs> you know, and, and like, where do people go if you get these forces that are not only massively deflationary, but also getting rid of the majority of what we even need labor to do? Well, let's use, here's a really good example that I think cuts across the disruption and the inflation and all of it. Like, Autonomous driving, autonomous truck driving in particular. Um, I know Australia is a huge country and I've seen, you know, the road trains that you guys have over there. And obviously we don't have that in the States, but we do have millions of truck drivers who are driving long haul, you know, they're away from home for days, weeks at a time. Well, there's been a kind of perpetual shortage of labor for truck driving and you know, direct and indirect labor costs are the primary cost of a trucking operation. So if you get to a space where you can execute a fully autonomous truck, um, Too Simple is a big Chinese-based, well, China and US-based company that has said they're going to be going public. Um, I think they filed their S1 yesterday, two days ago or something. And well, okay, so if we displace and disrupt you know, the most common job in a plurality of the United States, what are the implications of all of that labor? Um, what are those you know, men and women going to be doing? So it's like, okay, that should be deflationary, right? It's lower cost. So in a competitive market, you know, the autonomous trucking provider could offer the service at a lower cost. They could have higher margins themselves, but it's going to be a race to the bottom to an extent, right? Like they're going to just undercut other people on price. So I think it ends up being deflationary by nature. So it's like, okay, now trucking services are cheaper because we cut out all the labor cost, and, and then what happens? Like these are definitely societal implications beyond just the economic, like now what do all these truck drivers do? Like, <laughs> are we going to just do a universal basic income? I mean, it does seem to me that I know obviously people have their own political like feelings about it, but the idea of one thing I'll say, like the direct cash um, stimulus payments and, and whatnot, like it's become abundantly clear that if you give people that don't have much money um, and therefore have a high propensity to consume money, they're going to spend it. And when they spend it, you know, that has that whole multiplier effect, like through the economy. So I don't know that directly providing cash to people is a bad thing because we've found that like all these layered on systems are inherently very inefficient and bureaucratic. So if you just provide cash to the end person who's going to utilize it in a way that they deem most efficient for their own you know, personal well-being and self-interest, like that strikes me as a more efficient system than having, you know, layers of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all of these various programs. Now, shifting from the legacy to this, you know, newfound, everybody should get, you know, $1,000 a month, Andrew Yang style, whatever. Like, I don't know that that's the answer. And I know that his platform wasn't even to disrupt and get rid of those old things. But like it, it does speak to the fact that like, what is the purpose of a government in a society where we don't even need, you know, human labor in the same way that we did hundreds of years ago, decades ago? Yeah. So there's this this concept that I've um I've read about a few times throughout the past couple of years that whenever it has kind of just floated back into my kind of internet bubble or whatever um, abstract space I tend to occupy, however you want to describe it. Um, the concept is like fully automated luxury capitalism, which I think is what the, you two are both sort of loosely referring to here. And although I don't subscribe to many progressive ideals, I do see a, a pretty like overarching narrative of the future that I think is probably inevitable and we need to figure out how we're going to how we're going to traverse it which is like we have the, the climate catastrophe on our hands right now and simultaneously we have this sort of enormous disruption of technology AI particularly these deflationary technologies that you guys are talking about while at the same time we're trying to get over this massive climate change hurdle I think the the path for the next like 10 to 20 years is to figure out ways that as a society we can get these you know mammoth scale infrastructure projects in action get them done um, and hopefully drive growth through that and then on the other side of it we can sort of to an extent rest on our laurels like it, i know that there's no sort of like uh end end of history like francis fukuyama says i don't think that's possible but i think as far as we can project forward that's sort of like where we need to be getting to well hayden i think like just kind of going down that path you've got for example, in the U.S., I know the prime, not the primary, the largest contributor of greenhouse gas emissions is transportation. Mm. But if you're going to, whether it's electrification or 
through utilizing green hydrogen, if you're going to convert to either of those um, platforms away from the diesel engine or, or the gasoline-powered engine for other applications, like you can't do that without a significant, very significant infrastructure spend. Mm -hmm. And it's a very much a chicken and egg problem because hydrogen in particular, I mean, there's even higher just to, to build out all the electrolyzers, to build out a fueling infrastructure, like we're talking many billions of dollars to get that to scale. And now like I see in Europe, like Germany, I know they've spent a lot of money on, on investigating hydrogen and you know, the, you know, the hydrogen economy is something that like I've talked to you know, some smart people who've been around transportation for a long time. They're like, I've heard about this for decades, like mm. that this is going to be you know, the way transportation goes. Yeah, through. Right. Um, so it is definitely a challenge because there's a lot of investment required. It, it really is a paradigm shift. Like the, the, the mover of the world is burning fossil fuels. And to get away from that, like it's going to take a long time, no matter how you slice it. Um, it's going to take a lot of money, no matter how you slice it. And obviously there are like, more market-based solutions versus less market-based solutions. Um, and there's, you know, carrot versus stick. Like an example would be in California, they've recently rolled out rules that will require that, you know, certain percentages of trucks that are sold you know, starting in 2024 have to be electric or zero emission. Mm. And um, you know, that obviously will then incur penalties for people who don't meet that. So they'll, they'll get slapped with the stick. But you know, it, there's there's never a perfect answer, and I'm not trying to say that California is the right uh, model by any means. But yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. Uh, climate is a huge issue, and it's not something that we can just stick our heads in the sand because we want to win an election. In depending on you know what our population um, belief system is, like in in my country, there's a contingent that doesn't believe that it's real at all, and you know, unfor that's unfortunate. Um, that people, you know, refuse to have their mind open to reading scientific literature or, or even coming to a decision other than what, you know, they see on the TV screen. Yeah, I've um, done for, um, for my degree, um, one of the last projects that I worked on was an, 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 like a stakeholder analysis of um, the coal sector and more broadly the energy sector in Queensland, which is the state in Australia that I live in. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating the way that um, on both ends of the spectrum, the sort of pro-fossil fuel slash pro-industry um, end of the spectrum, which are sort of like unfairly um, joined together because industry shouldn't necessarily mean fossil fuel, but it, that's sort of the way it is at the moment. Um, and then obviously people who want to combat climate change, who identify as progressives um, or whatever. Um, it's really bizarre the way like it, it's politicized to the extent that we don't um, view the whole thing as an enterprise opportunity. Um, one of the the key takeaways when like doing this research project and trying to formulate uh, like policy recommendations for the state government is is that like everybody wants to contribute to something better and everybody wants to see growth, but we don't frame renewable energy or combating climate change as like a social or economic problem because it's it's a cultural and political one which. It's like a, a hurdle I don't know how we can get past because it seems to be so ingrained in the way that we sort of like communicate and live our lives at the moment um, because... Yeah, I feel like to, to the coal miner example, like there was a good pod on the interchange, I believe is the name of the pod, talking about that precise kind of quandary where renewable energy you know, advocates obviously are pushing for solar and wind and other forms of renewable, renewable energy generation, whereas like a very big consideration is that West Virginia coal miner who his father, his father's father, like that's, you know, that's his job. That's his career. That's his livelihood for his family. And if you, you know, you, Mr. or Ms. Progressive come out and say, you know, fuck the coal miners, they're bad people. Like what? Like, yes, these are obviously um, carbon intensive power generation sources. We understand resources. We understand that. But there needs to be like a clear consideration of we will still have some fossil generation for a period of time. It's not like a light switch moment. And how are you going to make right by it? You know, are you going to make right by the, the person who owns all of those mineral deposits? Like the person who has invested their life savings in building um, a mine that they expected that the mine would be able to be operated. I mean, That's not it's, nice. 
My uh, Siri didn't like that. That's not nice. Exactly. Uh, but but yeah. you know it's it's just completely in, insane to not consider the human cost of your desire to rapidly switch to renewables. Like you have to address the existing power generation, the existing res- like it's not just like a clean slate. Mm. And I know you get that, but like that's something that I feel like is missing from the conversation a lot of the time is how to get buy-in from those communities so that they won't feel like it's an us versus them. It's a we're all trying to get to the same point and we want to be able to provide you with retraining or invest in your community so that you can have a you know wind turbines in Charleston, West Virginia or what have you. Like as opposed to it just it seems to be very adversarial in most places. Yeah. I'm surprised that I haven't seen more um props to People shouting out, I don't know, like BP making large investments into renewables for that reason. Because I feel like a lot of that solution surely is going to come down to the Shell. oligarchs. Yeah, made like, a lot of investments there, yeah. Yeah, their shift over as opposed to the sort of rise of a lot of those, you know, new energy tech corporations well, 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 or whatever. Well, then it goes back to the whole like disruption thing, right? Like if I'm ExxonMobil and I have all of these oil and gas reserves, like... You're, it's a little bit of rock and a hard place, right? Like you don't want to completely disrupt your, you know, these massive tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, like sitting on your balance sheet of reserves because you pushed it, you know, too quickly. But on the same token, it's like, you can't just ignore it altogether. You've, you've got to find the right balance in, in the two. And I think to your point, BPs and shells of the world, um, some of the European based utilities too, are, are maybe doing a better job is my perception as some random person of, of broaching the two, like being willing to invest in this, you know, green economy, while obviously they have their legacy businesses that are going to generate, you know, it's just like with, with um, electric cars, like GM is going to make its money off selling pickup trucks for a long time. But eventually, all of those pickup trucks, or many of them will be powered by electric motors, or some non internal combustion. And it's like, figuring the pace to shift and how much to invest in the old versus the new, like a good example that relates to my work that I was following recently was uh, Daimler, right? The German truck and car, you know, they make Mercedes-Benz, they make um, Daimler trucks, you know, Mercedes-Benz trucks in the United States as Freightliner. So they last week came to an agreement with Cummins, who's one of the big engine makers in the world, you know, internal combustion engine. But Cummins is also investing in um, fuel cell. They bought an electrolyzer company. They bought, you know, a battery technology, a couple of battery related companies. So like they've made investments in that place, right? In the new, you know, the new economy. But Cummins has a core competency in engine making. So Daimler says medium duty engines, we think medium duty is going to be disrupted by electrification more quickly than heavy duty, for example, for a variety of reasons, predominantly just the battery packs, um, the heavy duty vehicles are so big and require so much of a um, penalty for weight hauling capacity that like heavy duty trucks by and large don't make as much sense for electric as like medium duty, you know, box truck. Uh, type of a thing. So Daimler said, we're going to stop investing research and development dollars in medium duty engine development. We are going to outsource that to Cummins, who will continue to do it. And it will now be Cummins engines that we're going to source for medium duty. We will continue to invest in heavy duty because we think heavy duty will have a longer runway, but we're going to invest a lot in fuel cell um, as well. And it kind of really speaks to the fact that you have all of these weird, like, partnerships and different sorts of strategic alignments that in a non-disrupted world you didn't have. Like, another good example would be, like, Mercedes and BMW working together. That's not something that would have ever happened, you know, five plus years ago, Mm. but they've been willing to work together um, given all of the disruptive technology change in the automotive space. So it's, there's no easy answers. It's really complicated and really challenging. And I I think it's really like one of those things where you might think you're doing it right. And then five years later, oh shit, we really fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I've I've pretty much got to bounce soon, but um, my last question, I guess, is it seems you're, you're, (laughs) Your conversation seems a lot more uh, bullish in terms of like a macro outlook and longer term outlook than uh, December 14th, I believe, when we were chatting and it felt like the U.S. has had a lot of problems then. It kind of felt very doom and gloom and, you know, the outlook was unclear. Is that a fair assessment of um, your mood, the mood? Yeah, the the COVID spike, I think, was going on while we had that recording in December. So thankfully, the case numbers have come down significantly. Obviously, we've got vaccinations going at a good clip. My grandmother last week let me know she got her first dose of one of the vaccines. So that's awesome. Um, Yeah, I do tend to feel maybe more confident now than I did then. trying not to be affected by my GameStop windfall. But <laughs> the you know, the underlying economy looks strong. Like every economist talking about manufacturing, like, yeah, you've got supply chain headwinds and chip shortages and steel shortages. But I mean, those are transitory things that will be solved for it. It's it's a 
good problem that demand is there and that we're seeing not a lack of demand, but a lack of you know, supply and that it's not like the productive capacity doesn't exist. I think um, a bigger area of uncertainty is really just going to be like still that employment situation, like getting the world back to enough normal where you can get people back to their jobs because the domestic unemployment rate is really a lot higher than the headline shows. Hmm. And we can travel again and you can come over to New Zealand for a, uh, for a celebratory beer. I need to see Hobbiton. <laughs> <laughs> it's an open offer, buddy. Yes. I, um, I meant to mention as well, anytime, um, when, when things start to revert back to normal, you know, there's always a bed in, in Australia for you in Brisbane, at least, uh, I can't vouch for Sydney or Melbourne. <laughs> Um, well, Love it. Damon, if you need to get going, we should wrap it up cool. to our listeners. Um, this might end up to be a slightly shorter episode than usual, but that's okay because I think Rod uh, dropped some potent knowledge on us um, as he did last time. So it'll make up for the, the shorter length. Remember that if you want to, you can support us on Patreon. So go to Patreon forward slash Modern Guilt to subscribe for it to our um, exclusive content where we're doing uh, deep dives into stocks. Uh, we recently just did UNFI or UNFI, as well as PIPP, um, Pine Island Acquisition Corp. So um, if you listened to that and found it useful, let us know. If you found it awful, let us know as well and let us know how you think we can improve. Otherwise, don't bag on us. If you can't provide constructive feedback, <laughs> then um, you probably can't do a better job yourself. So fuck you. That's five US dollars per month to um to support us and um also get yourself some handy info, I reckon. Also head to our Instagram at modern guilt pod, our Twitter, guilt underscore modern, email us modernguiltpod at gmail.com. You can also follow Rod Olsman on Twitter. Rod, what is your Twitter handle? Just at, at Rod, Rod Olsman on Twitter. And I'm going to plug gmedd.com yes. is our website that we launched recently since the last pod mm -hmm. as well. Beautiful. All right. Well, are you at all back in the game? As a final, final last question, Rod? I'm sure okay. someone's going to be asking about it. Okay. So <laughs> let me real quick run through my current positions in GameStop. All right. All right. I'm long 50 January 2022, $15 calls, Ooh. which I wrote the $45 spread leg on most and the $60 spread leg on another tranche of them. So unfortunately, I'm capped at 60 on those. Uh, and I'm also short, not short the stock, I'm <laughs> short many puts, meaning I would gladly buy the stock at that price ranging from 20 through $50 expiring anywhere from this Friday through January 2022. Awesome. Nice. All, right. All right. Let's wrap it up. Cool. Thanks for joining us again, dude. To the listeners, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Thank you.